over the past couple of weeks, we've been in a new series called Worship Wars, where we've talked about idolatry, which probably sounds like a regressive thing that we don't struggle with anymore if it's your first time in the last few weeks. But over the last two weeks, I've tried to set up the fact that we all have things in our lives that we, we, we elevate to a place that we shouldn't. And when we do that, chaos is often the result of those decisions. And I've also tried to describe that in 2017, idols usually aren't bad things that we put in that place in our lives. We're not tempted by bad things. It's the good things in our lives that we sometimes elevate to a place that only God should fill. And so over the next four weeks, I want to move from really uh, understanding what idolatry is to now talking about four idols that I see in Collin County that I think probably touch close to home for some of us. And my guess is that one out of these four, maybe more, will will in some way be one that maybe you struggle with a little bit more than the others. And it won't be hard to discover which of the idols is probably your choice. It'll, it'll probably be the one that the sermon upsets you most. Uh, so just a cue for you, if, if you get upset, um, you want to send a private email, don't come up after service because everyone else will know that's the one you're struggling with. That's a little unfair, isn't it, as the preacher to set up a sermon like that. But I think we all know that when there are things that, are, that have elevated importance, it's amazing how our blood pressure can rise a little bit when someone challenges us about those things. Or, or when there's struggle in our lives, we see our anger maybe rise up a little bit. So I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to be open, to be open with your ears and your eyes to see maybe what God will point out in your life may be that struggle. And before we get started with number one, uh, I want to remind you, these are not bad things. It will be easy to mistake what I'm saying to say these are bad things, but almost all of these four things over the next four weeks I'm going to point out are actually very good things. And if in their proper place, they deserve a great value and love and appreciation in our lives, but it's important that it remains in its place below where God is. And if things get out of whack, we see the chaos that's the result. Let's pray as we open with the first of these this morning. God, I pray this morning that as people enter in to this space as they've opened their hearts through worship to you, as they've sung songs that remind us, God, where you are supposed to be, that you're our only king, and that you are a good father. God, we, we, uh, we open scripture again to see uh, the goodness that you share with us, God, the, the place you deserve. And, and God, we're sorry for the times that we have misplaced priorities, our loves get disordered. And God, we want to rightly order those again today. So God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ should be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first idol I want to address this morning isn't something you would have left at home today, most likely. It's not something you can place in your purse or, or your pocket. first idol that we're going to talk about today may be sitting right beside you or down the hall in our children's worship. The first idol I want to describe is the idol of family. And when it comes to Collin County, Texas... We understand the location we're in. This is a family central USA, and some way or another, you're probably connected in some way, uh, and our hope is that this church family becomes more of that for you. If you don't have a family of your own, that you'll find a place here amongst others that are struggling and working toward that journey. And so maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a close friend that's become like family to us, or maybe it's a child that's taken that place. And again, I'll remind you one more time, these are not bad things, idols. A family is a very good thing. It's something we want to highly value in our world. And we've seen what's happened when family goes wrong. It can become a real problem. But it's when we make good things into ultimate things 
that these idols play havoc in our lives. And so we see the temptation we have because we value those in our family. And I want to open up to the book of Genesis this morning. It's a place I'll spend all my time this morning in a couple of chapters. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story of the first family and how this idol starts becoming a problem for humanity. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, feel free to open up to Genesis chapter 2. We'll also have the words on the screen here in just a moment. Verse 15 is where I'd like to begin reading right now. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So in Genesis 1, before this chapter comes up, we see a, a, a rhythm, a refrain. It's almost like Genesis 1 is this poem that's written that has this cadence and beat to it, right? God creates day one, the heavens and the earth, and he steps back and he looks and he calls it good. Day two, he creates again, he steps back and he calls it good. Every day of creation, there's this refrain of God creating, looking at his work and calling it good. And when he creates humans on day six, he even takes that a step further. He says it's very good what he's created in us, that we're in some way uh, the gift of creation, uh, the pinnacle of his creation. But in Genesis 2, for the first time in verse 18, we read God not saying something's good or very good. He says, it's not good. Verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. We're made for relationship, aren't we? We're we're made for community. God's given us a desire to connect with others, and it's a good thing when we are connected. It's not good when we are disconnected. And so God works to fix what is not good in the verses that follow in verse 19. Let's continue reading. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he could name, would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now that last line was a bit of a surprise to me. Because I always knew that Adam was naming the creatures, but what it looks like in the last part of that passage is that he's looking for his suitable helper amongst the animals. It's like this picture of the bachelor, but a far worse picture of it, right? Imagine this, like all these animals come by, names them, now the rhinoceros isn't going to work for helper, right? And then it goes through. It's a strange scene. I, I never really picked this up until a couple of weeks ago. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's as if Adam's supposed to search the animal kingdom and hope that that goodness will come. And then God gives another try. Verse 21, let's keep reading. So the Lord God caused the man to follow into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? God gives Adam a counterpart, a human counterpart who compliments him. And these two are designed to come together in such a way that they're actually one flesh when they're living this out correctly with one another. Many of us in the room have known that joy, haven't we? The joy of being connected in partnership with a spouse. The joy of coming together with a close friend, of being not not good, the aloneness that God calls. 
but many of us also know the pain that comes with that. That love comes with inherent risk, doesn't it? When we enter into relationship, it also means that so much is out of our control with the love that we have for that person. They can choose to end that just as quickly as it was started. And after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, there are consequences that come. One of the consequences has to do with how our relationships that were meant for good to bring us together actually can cause bigger problems. So drop down, if you would, to Genesis 3.16, and we see part of the consequence of the fall that happens in Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, somehow I think we've misunderstood the second part of this verse in 3.16. Because we talked last week about the ordering of creation. You remember this, that we talked about how God is at the, on the throne of our lives, and then we as humans are co-rulers with God. We're not God, but we're, we're ruling with Him over His creation. But creation goes beneath us. And anytime you disrupt that order and the things that God's created overtakes God, chaos is the result. That's what sin is in our lives. And it's almost as if when we get to 3.16, we think God's setting a new hierarchy in order, right? There's God, there's man, there's woman. But I would suggest that Genesis 3.16 is telling us something different. Rather than setting in place a new gender hierarchy, this verse actually explains the disorder of relationships that aren't as they should be. It says there, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Rather than finding our identity in Jesus or putting God on the throne of our lives, what this verse is saying is when your desires for your husband, when your desires for that relationship, they're going to rule over you in a way that's not true if you were to put your identity first in Jesus. And many of you know what this is like. To find your identity most in that spouse or that loved one who in some way betrayed that In some ways, they rule over you in that season. And any time you try to find your life in a human relationship, you hand that person immense power to devastate what's there. When we choose to love someone, we open ourselves up to great risk. Love is inherently dangerous, and there's no getting around that danger. And that's true of our idols as well. Anything or person we put in the place where God should be is going to rule us in a way it wasn't intended to. Because the one thing you can count on an idol to do is to fail you. Idols never fail to fail. And the romantic comedies we see kind of end before that failure, don't they? They end when things are good. They they don't show how desire sometimes rules over us. But love is inherently risky. Which brings me to a story later in Genesis. A story of love, betrayal, of risk. All of those things that would rival any episode of Jerry Springer. Specifically, it's in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, the story of a guy named Abram. Later, his name is changed to Abraham. And Abraham has a family. He marries this woman named Sarai, but it doesn't get off to a great start because Sarai can't have children. And so Sarah ends up giving her maidservant to Abraham, and he conceives a son named Ishmael. But then Sarah gets pregnant at a much older age, and then there's this trouble because now there's Ishmael and the maidservant, and now there's, there's all this jealousy going on. So Abraham ends up dismissing Ishmael and, and Hagar, that maidservant, and now he's trying to live it out with the second son who will be the child of promise. And the family dysfunction just multiplies as the generations continue on. Isaac, uh, his second son, has a wife, Rebecca, who gives birth to two sons twins, Esau and Jacob, and they have all kinds of problems in their life, and eventually, 
Rebecca, Isaac's wife, when Isaac gets to a place where he can't see as well, ends up tricking her own husband into giving the birthright to the second son rather than the first. And that causes a whole bit of turmoil because now Esau's mad at Jacob who's tricked the father. You see how messed up a family this is, right? And, and, and the dysfunction continues on. And so Jacob, who's stolen the birthright, has to go on the run away from Esau. And he, he winds up coming to a, the house of a man named Laban. We'll come back to that story in a little bit. But as the generation goes on, Jacob has kids. In fact, Jacob has 12 children by four different mothers, which creates quite a dynamic under one roof. And the story of love, risk, and betrayal I want to tell today is about that household, about Jacob's household. Again, it all began when Jacob goes on the run from Esau. He goes to his uncle Laban's house for protection, maybe to find work, but what he finds there is a new obsession. Her name is Rachel. Let's read in in Genesis 29. Uh, Flip over there with me if you would. Genesis 29, it's a longer reading beginning in verse 16 uh, about the story of Jacob and the household he develops. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other men. How about that for a you know, supportive statement, right? Uh, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Man, if you're looking for a Valentine's Day line, that's a pretty good one, right? Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Not the line you want to give to your future father-in-law also. It's a messed up story. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Now that's a crazy story. In Jacob's day, people didn't really marry for emotional love or attraction the way we do in the modern Western world. But this story seems to be all about attraction, doesn't it? Jacob has his eyes set on Rachel, and his love is so intense that the years felt to him like just a few days because of his intense love for her. And all that sounds really romantic, uh, unless you're Leah. And this morning, I don't want you to put yourself in the place of Rachel. I'd like for you for a moment to put yourself in the place of of Leah. And while we don't fully know what it means that Leah has weak eyes, it seems obvious that she's lived in the shadow of her sister Rachel all of these years, the beautiful, lovely figured one. My guess is that Leah has always been in her shadow. And for seven years, Jacob works for her sister. And on the wedding day, your dad decides to pull this awful trick. He can't get her married off, so we might as well. I assume alcohol had something to do with this, right? And then 
he tricks Jacob into somehow marrying Leah. And the next morning he wakes up out of his slumber and he finds he's married the wrong woman. Can you imagine? Imagine being Leah in the situation. Of being the joke that's being pulled on Jacob. Imagine for years your father was trying to figure out a way to get rid of you. And finally he has. But you've got to listen the next morning when you hear the fury in the other room when Jacob says to Laban, I was in this for Rachel, not for her. Just adds to the pain. Imagine wanting love from your husband and knowing you'll never have it. Some of you are in that place right now. You love someone who won't return the love. Maybe it's someone you desire to marry and they don't seem to show your, your same level of attraction, but perhaps it's someone you're in a marriage with right now. And there's nothing you can do to force that person to love and return the love you have. Sounds exactly like the curse that Jacob gave in Genesis 3, doesn't it? 16, second half. Your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. Others of us can't relate to Leah, perhaps. Maybe we relate more to Jacob. We worked and worked to finally get the attention of that other someone, and then we get married, and maybe it's not day one, maybe it's just a few years down the line that we wondered, is this the same person that I was dating that I was hoping to marry before? Things seem so different. Facts have come out in new ways. It seems like you've married somebody completely different than the one you'd imagine you would. Hopefully it's not exactly like the story of Genesis 29 but it can still be as painful. And like Jacob, you married putting all of your weight, all of your hopes on this person to fill you in a way that you weren't full before. But the truth is, church, if you weren't full before, whatever that thing is you put in the place of God, you're not going to be full after it. It's important to do the hard work beforehand to continue to do that work to put God at the center. Because if you put all of your, your joy and hope on any person, they will fail you. Because that's what idols do what humans do. We fail one another. July 24, 2004, I stood on a stage like this. I was holding hands with Holly and there were hundreds that were gathered to hear our vows to one another. And I, I still remember that day and the commitments we made. Mostly, I don't remember the sermon. I just remember trying to get I do correctly at the right time. My dad officiated the ceremony that day. And I can't tell you what he preached, really, at least in memory from that day, but I have looked back at his sermon recently, and it was a brilliant sermon. It was a radical sermon in a way, because it's not what you do in this day of hashtags at weddings, right? Pinterest, where you pin all those things ahead of time. We make weddings into a big deal, don't we? And it's such a big deal that we make that into almost the key date in our lives, right? The day we we get married, and what my dad said on the stage that day as we were holding each other's hands was, This is not the most important day in your life. The most important days in your life happened on March 13, 1997, and on September 14, 1997. Those were the days that we were both baptized into Jesus Christ. And it's not the thing you do on a day like that. You elevate that day, don't you? You say, this is the most important decision you'll ever make. But what my dad did was the right thing on that day. What he was reminding us was the day you made a commitment to make Jesus Lord, to put him on the throne of your life, that was the best decision you could ever make for this date that you'll remember and celebrate. And what he was trying to tell us was, if you put the burden of whatever your emptiness is on this person, oh, it will not go It doesn't take many years into marriage with the hopes that you have of how this will somehow fill you to realize 
that was never what this marriage thing was supposed to do in the first place, was it? We're only filled if we're filled before we enter into the gifts that God brings. And that doesn't mean marriage is a bad thing. It's a wonderful gift. It's best received, though, as we're filled by our previous commitments. As we're filled by our commitments to make Jesus Lord. If you want to destroy your marriage, the fastest way to do it is to make your spouse the most important thing in your life. And there aren't too many places in our culture that will tell you that. Because when you do that, it is far too great a burden for any person to carry. I like the way Ernest Becker puts this. He says, no human relationship can bear this burden of Godhood. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. What is it that, when we, want, uh, that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. To know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, humans cannot give this. Idolatry is too great a, person, a burden for any person to bear, and it, it shouldn't surprise us that marriages fall apart in this culture where romantic love becomes more important than any other thing. Marriage isn't the only way that we idolize family, though, is it? In fact, the story of Leah goes on, if we read on, and we will in just a moment in, in Genesis 29, verse 31, to tell a story about another place that Leah puts her hope and her identity. She uh, has children with Jacob, but Rachel's not able to, and she begins to put her hope in those children, that maybe if the children can come along, then maybe Jacob's love will be hers. This is what it says, the story as it continues on. This is Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. Pay attention to these names and descriptions. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, she gave me this one too, or he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she, he was named Levi. See what she does? The names of her children display what she desires most. She desires Jacob's love, and her thought is, maybe one more will do it. Maybe I can finally have what I need most if I just have one more child. And time and time again, she's frustrated. I see the same idolatry at work in Collin County. When the marriage doesn't fill us up, we think maybe just one more kid will do it. And then we place the burden of fulfillment on our kids. We, we move our idolatry from our spouses and we place them on the heads of these babies that we carry, hoping that that void in our life will be filled when what we're really doing is creating premeditated disappointment. If you want to ruin your children, make them the center of your life. Find every bit of your self-worth and identity in their success. Your children cannot bear the weight of godhood. They cannot fill you up. And it's true of anything or anyone we put in the place of God. If we demand those things to give us all that we need, they'll never be able to fill us up in the ways we hope. And in the process, it will ruin the relationship because we are demanding way too much of a person that can never do what God can. So when you make a relationship with someone else your God, it will eventually be marked with disappointment and bitterness. When you look to someone else to be your God, they're going to let you down. Because here's the truth. 
we love others best when we love God most. Let me say that again. We love others best when we love God most. When we get that ordering right, it's amazing the gift we can be to the others in our lives. In fact, watch what Leah does at the end of her journey with her fourth child. It's a shift that happens in her that I think it's important for us to notice. If you notice right now that maybe this good thing in your life, your child, your spouse, you put it too high of a level, maybe you've expected too much, then maybe Leah's story will be a, a blessing to you. This is Genesis 29, verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. You notice the shift that comes with this fourth child? Instead of, I'm naming them this so that maybe my husband will love me. Maybe the third one will finally turn his heart toward me. She gives up on that with the fourth child. She names him Judah, who just happens to be the one whose line Jesus will come from. And she says, this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. I know this morning I'm probably treading on some pretty sensitive territory. Because for some of you, you feel acutely this sense of giving everything you can to someone else who won't return the love you desire. For others of you, it may be that journey with a child that you're hoping that, you know, what they do on the athletic field or the scholarship they get or their report card, something that they do might fill you up more. Have you ever seen the parent who's out on the field yelling at the referees? It's usually because of idolatry. Things that make us angry reveal the things that matter most. And it is not a sin to love your spouse. It's not a sin to put your kids in an important place. That's what God calls us to do with His gifts. But we do that within the frame of knowing who's on the throne of our lives. Recently I was uh, talking with a, some people that were struggling in their marriage. And, and one of the ministers on staff was helping me see something that sometimes we think that what we've got to do is make them the most important thing in our lives. And if we can do that, then maybe we can salvage the relationship. But what I found in working with couples is it's finally when they come to realize that all of their identity and worth and everything they need is in God, that all of a sudden they, don't start, they stop pulling strings and manipulating their spouse in ways that may cause trouble. We can't stop and control the external behaviors of others. It's part of the pain that happens when we hand our lives over to another is there's a risk that's involved. I want to challenge you uh, today, this week, to be in a place that you'll hand that place back to God. You'll not put too hard of a burden on your kids or on your spouse to fill what only He can. It's when we're full in that way that all of a sudden we become open to a whole new kind of love. You found this to be true, church. I hope we will in this week to come. This morning we come to the table of the Lord. We come to share at a meal we do every week. At this meal, what we're doing is exactly what I've talked about. We're reminding ourselves of the story that orients our lives. That's the most important factor in who we are. Many of us have made that decision to follow Jesus as Lord. This meal, every week, we surround ourselves at this table and we're reminded of the death and the burial and the resurrection. We're reminded of the story that is most important to us. We're reminded maybe of our baptisms the most important date even more than the other dates of our children's birth or our marriage. So this morning as we come to this table, let me remind you of the most important date. And if you haven't yet had that most important date, if you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, we'd love nothing more than to have a conversation. Our prayer partners in the back or find me after service, I'd love to engage a conversation about what it looks like to put him on the throne of our lives. 
Let's pray as we enter into this time of the table. God, I pray right now for the marriages in this room that are feeling tension and struggle. God, I pray that you would do what only you can and that our attention, our our heart's love would be most directed to you. And that as two parties begin to move toward you, it's amazing how we move to one another without the needs that we manipulate to receive otherwise. God, I'm thinking about those that may be struggling right now in a season of infertility. They're longing for this child. And I pray that in this season of waiting, whatever that journey may look like, God, that they will find that their enough is found in you before whatever gift you choose to bring. God, I pray for those who have kids that have wandered off. And God, they're struggling because they care deeply for their kids, and yet the truth is you care even more for them than we do. That's hard to understand because we would do anything to trade places, God, with our kids. That's exactly what we celebrate at this table is you trading places with us through your son, Jesus. So God, help us to elevate Jesus to the center of our lives, to the core of who we are, that we can find all that we need in him so that there's not near as much pressure to make gods out of people in our lives. God, thank you for this meal, this time of remembrance. And we put you again as the only king in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.